Hello, and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, bringing to you this week news from India, Brazil, the United States, and a see you in hell, that's the celebration of a dead fascist, from Nazi Germany. Going to start out in India, Rahul Gandhi's conviction has been suspended. Rahul Gandhi is, or was until very recently, the leader of India's National Congress Party, which is the sort of like center-left-ish? I don't know. that They've been the ruling party of India for most of its post-independence period, essentially until Narendra Modi's party took over power in the country very recently. Since then, Narendra Modi's party, the BJP, has done extremely well in India, partly through their attacks on the Congress party and on its legacy of corruption, and some legacies of authoritarianism. A lot of those legacies have to do with the Gandhi family, and this is actually not Mohandas Gandhi, this is the other Gandhi family, Indira Gandhi, the former prime minister of India. Rahul Gandhi is one of her descendants, and he was recently barred from the Indian Congress after being convicted of a hate crime for criticizing Modi. Specifically, he made a joke about many people being named Modi who are thieves. But it turns out that Modi's technically a member of a protected ethnic group in India, making this arguably a hate crime in Indian law. However, this conviction, which barred Rahul Gandhi from the Indian Congress and also prevented him from running for re-election, has recently been overturned. This means that it is possible for Gandhi to return to the Congress in India, not just the Congress party, but like the legislature, right? And that means that one of Modi's most ardent critics and most powerful opposition figures could be coming back in power. Gandhi is a really big possibility for somebody who might be prime minister if Modi were kicked out of power. However, Gandhi's return also bolsters the power of his dynasty in the Congress party, which like isn't a right-wing thing. It's just more of a sort of like kleptocratic, you know, democratic, aristocratic thing, right? Moving on to Brazil, the former head of the Brazilian Highway Police, a man named Silvene Vasquez, has had a warrant out for his arrest with the federal police. This regards Vasquez's interference in the second round of the Brazilian election. Now, in Brazil, police officers and police organizations are run nationally. This means that Vasquez was in charge of the highway police not just in any state of Brazil, but in the entirety of Brazil. He was a longtime Bolsonaro supporter and was shown to have praised Bolsonaro on his social media accounts, for example. On the day of the second round of the Brazilian election, when it was already just down to Bolsonaro versus Lula, Vasquez ordered members of the highway police to conduct what he called random roadblocks and checks. In practice, what he did was he got the Brazilian highway police to institute a series of roadblocks and checks of vehicles entering places where there were polling stations from regions where Lula voters typically lived. So primarily a lot of these roadblocks occurred in rural areas where Lula voters predominate, and they were specifically organized along routes that these voters take to go to vote in person. This was a pretty clear attempt to suppress the Lula vote on the day of. He was very clearly trying to prevent a critical number of Lula supporters from getting to the polls on election day. 
This was recognized by Brazil's Supreme Electoral Tribunal on the day of, but they decided that the interference wasn't sufficient to have actually overturned or changed the results of the election. This turned out to have been true. Lula did win as he was predicted to win, but Silvani Vasquez's interference remains a criminal offense in Brazil. This is why he is being charged with this crime and a warrant has been put out for his arrest regarding this crime. Again, this is Brazil dealing with their attempted coup, like, right away. You know, all of this happened, you know, in January. This is only only eight months ago, and already some of the main perpetrators are in jail or are being pursued by the police. The main perpetrator, Jair Bolsonaro himself, has been barred from participating in electoral politics for eight years. They are getting serious consequences. Meanwhile, the next thing that I want to talk to you is something that I am calling serious consequences for Trump and his legal team. But that means that, like, they might face certain kinds of consequences in the future over the course of several years or, like, potentially decades of litigation. Specifically, the legal trouble that is brewing right now concerns a leaked memo and also comments by former Donald Trump lawyer John Eastman. I'm going to talk about Eastman first. John Eastman is one of the kookier figures in Trump's legal team. He's the sort of guy who wears like a trench coat and a hat, like he's a sort of 40s gangster type, you know? In a recent interview, John Eastman really spilled the beans when it came to Donald Trump's plans and the ideology behind his attempted coup. Specifically, he just like openly admitted that like, yeah, January 6th was an attempt to overthrow the government. He said that they were acting in the legacy of the founders of the United States, and that they were acting based on the ideology of the Declaration of Independence, which I want to remind you is not a legally binding document in the United States. It is just a Declaration of Independence and predates not just the Constitution, but also the United States' first attempt at a federal government, the Articles of Confederation. Now, the Declaration of Independence says that people can take the opportunity to create a new and better government for themselves, right? That's one of the things that it says, and that's exactly what Eastman said that the people invading the Capitol building on January the 6th were trying to do. Essentially, he's saying like, yeah, they were trying to overthrow the government and we were trying to help them. That is not good for Trump's potential defenses in his looming January 6th trials. Additional details regarding the January 6th attempted coup have emerged, specifically regarding the leak of a memo which has more details specifically outlining how the Trump administration was trying to use fake electors to keep Biden out of offices. Specifically, the plan was to develop a set of fake electors in key states that Trump said that he won, which, of course, Biden actually won. Now, this plan hinges on a number of factors, and the biggest one is something that I, uh, you know, feel unfortunately obligated to remind all of us, which is that The Constitution that runs the United States wasn't written in the 20th century, it wasn't written in the 19th century, it was written in the 18th century, which means that the Electoral College that it refers to is a body of, like, actual human persons. Like, human people have to go to Washington, D.C. in order to cast their vote for the president. And originally, and to an extent still today, the states get a lot of leeway in determining exactly which human persons they send to cast those votes. This means that states get the opportunity to do a lot of untoward stuff in picking those people. 
They might choose people whom they think are more likely to be quote-unquote unfaithful electors, people who vote against where the way that their state actually voted. That's something that electors do from time to time. One of them actually did it on the first vote of the Electoral College in order to prevent George Washington from being elected unanimously. One of the electors voted for somebody else, despite the fact that all of his state's electoral votes went to George Washington. So the plan conducted by Trump administration officials and also by his legal team was to get some of these key states, many of them were controlled in, you know, in their state legislature by Republicans, to get some of these key states to send fake electors. And the idea was that these fake electors would, you know, gum up the courts and bring a bunch of legal challenges, potentially all the way to the Supreme Court, in order to bide time for Donald Trump to keep Biden out of office for as long as possible, and also to increase the possibility of them getting a lucky legal break in terms of keeping Trump in office. The plan also specifically relied on Mike Pence exercising what a lot of Trump advocates say are the special powers of the vice president to preside over the Senate and to decide the legitimacy of electors and also to count the votes of the Electoral College. That's the key role that they think Trump was, you know, hoping that Pence was going to be able to enact. Pence eventually refused, apparently on the advice of Dan Quayle, which is just like monstrous, just like completely insane, that apparently the advice of Dan Quayle kept the vice president of the United States from joining the president in a coup. And speaking of coups, the last bit of news that I want to share from the United States is actually a historical bit of news, but it deals with my research in Latin American history and the right wing, and so I wanted to bring it to your attention. New files have shown that shortly after Salvador Allende's election in Chile, Richard Nixon met with right wing news business person, a Chilean business person, Augustine Edwards, who founded the Chilean El Mercurio, which is a conservative newspaper in Chile. Nixon was talking directly with Edwards about how to stage a coup. Now, Salvador Allende, recall, was the first and, as far as I know, only fully legitimately elected Marxist in the Western Hemisphere at that time. He was a member of the Socialist Party of Chile and had been elected in a popular front, a popular unity government that consisted of everybody essentially sort of left of center-ish, so, you know, like everybody left of a person like Bernie Sanders, all the way to like actual practicing Maoist communists, right? Those were the people that were in power in Chile. Nixon did not like this and was apparently already like right at the beginning, after Allende had been elected, was already talking about how to stage a coup. Now, this is important because the United States left and the left in Latin America in general likes to lay the Pinochet dictatorship at the feet of the United States, and this is potentially evidence for that. However, as a reminder, while we know that the CIA and the United States were behind some early coup attempts in Chile, we have that evidence and we have that information, and this is more evidence to that effect, that in 1970, 1971, the United States was pushing for a coup in Chile and did help with attempted coups in Chile, those coups failed. It seems, at least based on what we know so far, that the United States was not actually behind the coup that eventually brought Augusto Pinochet into power in Chile. Finally, going to close out this week, like I do every week, with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. And this is actually a pretty prominent one. This guy's name is Balder von Scheidach the leader of the Hitler Youth from 1931 to 1940, and also eventually the Gauleiter of Vienna. 
Von Scheirach was born in Berlin to a noble military family, the Von Scheirachs. His mother was actually from the United States, however, and English was his home tongue until he was six years old. He joined the right wing very young. He was in a paramilitary group at age 17 and joined the party and the SA at 18. This was also partly because of his father's deep connections to the Nazi party. He met Hitler at 18. He was a major Hitler fan. He wrote poems that would later become semi-popular Nazi songs. He moved quickly through his career from a small youth leader to a university group leader, finally to a national youth leader, eventually landing him the position of the leader of the Hitler Youth. He married the daughter of Hitler's personal friend and photographer, which is a very close position to Adolf Hitler, at 19. This cemented himself also being in the inner circle of the Nazi party. This is before they took power, right? The two witnesses to his marriage were Adolf Hitler and Ernst Röhm, at the time the leader of the SA, the part of the Nazi party that he was in. These were the two most important Nazis at the time. His wedding reception was even in Adolf Hitler's apartment. As the party grew, his power grew with it. And throughout the late 20s, he was a major youth leader in the Nazi party, focused on trying to get young middle-class and well-to-do people to join the Nazi party. In 1932, he became the Reichsführer of the Hitler Youth and led the organization as a combination fighting squad and propaganda machine. He was also a member of the Reichstag, uh, which is the German legislature, during the election that brought the Nazis to power. After the war broke out, he served on the French front, and then in 1940 was essentially promoted out of the Youth League stuff, although he kept his hand in it for a while, and became the Gauleiter of Vienna. A Gauleiter is the top party official in the Nazi system, so this is somebody who may or may not have a government position, von Scherach did, but this is somebody who's the top party official in a region. And being the top party official in Vienna, one of the biggest and most important cities in the German Empire, was a major, major post. He did a lot to get the Viennese to like him. Specifically, he worked with a lot of old, disgruntled Austro-fascists. However, things soured for von Scheirach as the war dragged on, as they did for many intelligent Nazis. Von Scheirach entered into a feud with Adolf Hitler because he advocated for peace negotiations with the Allies as the war soured. This made Hitler kind of really dislike him, and that was really cemented by a conflict between Hitler and von Scheirach's wife, who was complaining about Jewish quote-unquote deportations, that is, the sending of Jewish people to concentration and extermination camps from Amsterdam. After the Allied invasions of Austria, von Scheirach fled the Red Army west and ended up successfully surrendering to the United States, which was what he was trying to do. He actually, while he was fleeing the Red Army, posed as a crime novelist, which incidentally is what one of his sons does. Uh, this is Ferdinand von Scheirach, a best-selling author in Germany of crime novels. Von Scheirach was sent to trial at Nuremberg, where he denounced Hitler, but did not denounce his anti-Semitism. He claimed that he didn't know anything about exterminations and said that the Hitler youth were just Boy Scouts and not paramilitary training groups. These were all lies, but they did get him some sympathy from the court. He was not sentenced to execution, like he probably should have been, but was instead sentenced to 20 years in Spandau prison with the other top Nazis who weren't hanged. While he was in prison in 1949, his wife divorced him. He was then released in 1966 after serving his full sentence. 
When he got out, he wrote a bunch of memoirs and moved around in former Nazis' villas, you know, with other people who were in the SS or other people who ran youth organizations in the Nazi era. And for example, he died in a hotel run by former runners of the girl equivalent of the Hitler Youth. This was the League of German Girls. He died this week in history of coronary thrombosis at the age of 67 on August 8th, 1974. So, von Schaudach, we will see you in hell. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. Check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism spelled out in all one word. That's also where you can reach me on Gmail, 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at hist of the right. That's H-I-S-T of the right. And I'm also on blue sky at 15. That's the numerals one five M-I-N-S of F-A-S-C. All right. Thanks very much. And I will talk to you next week.